0: The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. The Pluck of the Irish. The Feast of St. Patrick is today more often known by revellers and party goers as an opportunity to wear outrageous green costumes and consume copious quantities of Guinness. In reality, Patrick was a 5th century Romano British Christian missionary and bishop in Ireland at the age of 16 he was kidnapped by Irish raiders and taken as a slave to Gaelic Island, where he was forced to work as a shepherd and there he found God God told him to flee Ireland and that a ship would be waiting for him which indeed took him home to become a priest He returned to Scotia, as it was known then, to convert the pagan Irish to Christianity, and his efforts to get rid of the Druids became an allegory in which he drove all the snakes out of Ireland. On St. Patrick's Day, Lenten restrictions are lifted for the day to allow much eating and drinking, which comes from the custom of drowning the shamrock by pouring whisky over a shamrock leaf, which is then drunk as a toast. In this tale of Irish celebration, told on the 17th of March, I won't be donning a tacky Irish costume and promoting a leprechaun-riddled stereotype, but honouring Ireland's contribution to aviation. Perhaps best known is when Ireland, both metaphorically and geographically, became the centre of global aviation. Ireland is the closest part of Europe to North America, so it's not surprising that the first attempts to cross the Atlantic by air would end on the Emerald Isle. On the morning of the 15th of June 1919, out of the mist, a Vickers Vimy emerged. The Englishman John Alcock and the Scotsman Arthur Brown had been airborne for sixteen hours in the most trying of conditions, and they were undoubtedly delighted to see what looked like flat pasture land beneath them. Unfortunately, they had chosen a round stone bog near Clifton in County Galway as a landing strip, and when their undercarriage sank into the wet ground, the Vimy came to a grinding halt as it nosed over. Luckily, neither airmen were injured, but the Vimy needed some work before it was fit to take its place in the Science Museum of London. This event, though, wasn't the first significant aviation story to come out of Ireland. For that, we must look to Henry Ferguson, the famous tractor manufacturer. I wish I could tell you that he invented the first flying manure spreader, but whilst I can't, I can certainly tell you about his other accomplishments. Henry George Ferguson was born in 1884, in a Dromore county down. He worked hard on the family farm, but didn't get on with his strict father, so took off to work in his brother's garage in Belfast. It was here that he got his nickname as the Mad Mechanic. Fascinated by flight, he was determined to build and fly his own aircraft, the Ferguson monoplane. He knew of the aviator A.V. Rowe, who founded Avro, and his success as the first British aircraft builder who flew his machine, a triplane, from Brooklands near Weybridge, and he set out to be the first to fly in Ireland. He convinced his brother that they should use their Belfast workshops to build the machine, and after visiting many air shows, they started piecing together a design partly cribbed from information found in the flight magazine. What they came up with looked a little like the Blerio monoplane, powered by a 35-horsepower JAP engine. After many changes and improvements, they towed the finished machine behind a car through the streets of Belfast and up to Hillsborough Park to make their first attempt. At first they were thwarted by propeller trouble and worked on the machine through the day, but then bad weather grounded them. And it wasn't until a week later, on the last day of 1909, that it all came together. Harry fired up the engine and rolled his machine down an incline and into the air to become the first Irishman to build and fly his own machine. A reporter from the Belfast Telegraph described the scene. The roar of the eight cylinders was like the sound of a Gatling gun in action. The machine was set against the wind, and all force being developed, the splendid pull of the new propeller swept the big airplane along as Mr Ferguson advanced the lever. Presently, at the movement of the pedal, the airplane rose into the air at a height from 9 to 12 feet, amidst the heavy cheers of the onlookers. The poise in the machine was perfect, and Mr Ferguson made a splendid flight of 130 yards. Although fierce gusts of wind made the machine wobble a little, twice the navigator steadied her by bringing her head to wind. It was the most successful initial flight that has ever been attempted upon an airplane. During June 1910, Ferguson made a flight of two and a half miles, flying at only a few feet over McGilligan Strand at Lough Foyle, County Derry and further successful flights were made at Newcastle, County Down. Sadly, a year after its first flight, it was damaged during a landing, but Ferguson took the opportunity to rebuild it in a modified form, with the wingspan and the fuselage being shortened, and fabric was used to cover the entire fuselage. With this machine, Ferguson made several excellent flights in 1911, before coming to grief on a soft mud bank. Undeterred, once again the monoplane was restructured, this time with a nose wheel replacing the skid, giving it a tricycle undercarriage. This third version was also an excellent flyer and was flown regularly at McGilligan's Stand in 1912 by Ferguson and also by the famed aviator O.G. Lywood. It was reported that he became very adept at controlling his machine, once or twice having encountered very gusty weather. He took others up with him, including a lady passenger with him prior to the Leopardstown Air Show, which entitled him to the record of having achieved the very first passenger flight in Ireland. But that was all. After three years of intense effort in making and flying aircraft, the inventor fell out with his brother, and he changed direction into automotive and agricultural machinery which would actually make him more famous, so famous that some of his inventions are now in the London Science Museum. His skill as an inventor and mechanic led to the development of what is now the modern tractor, the first hydraulic adjustable plough, the three-point hitch, and a four-wheel drive system utilising an open-centre differential gear which has been used in Formula One racing cars, Land Rovers, and the Range Rover. Highlands aviation heroes weren't all men, though. Lillian Bland was brought up in England to a well-to-do Anglo-Irish family. By the turn of the century, she was working as a sports journalist and press photographer for various London newspapers. She was well known for her unconventional lifestyle – disregarding the social norms of the period by smoking, wearing trousers, hunting, shooting and fishing. After being widowed from a childless marriage, she took to photographing seabirds on the remote islands of Scotland, which nurtured her interest in flying. She lived with her father in Tobacorran House on Glebe Road West, just north of Belfast in Ireland. Like Ferguson, she had studied Bleriot's monoplane, which inspired her to take up flying by building her own machine, which she named Mayfly. Adding her own modifications to the design, the Mayfly had similar wings to Bleriot's monoplane, but it was to be a biplane controlled by a canard and looked similar to the Wright Flyer. Borrowing her uncle's workshop, she first built a model with a six-foot wingspan to prove her ideas would work, and then set to create a full sized machine built from spruce, bamboo and canvas. It was finished in early 1910, only a few months after Ferguson's aircraft first flew, and had a 20-foot wingspan and weighed 200 pounds. After months of test glides and the fitting of an AV-row 20-horsepower two-stroke engine, she was eager to fly her machine. There were many doubts expressed about her ability to control her creation, which is why she chose the name Mayfly with deliberate irony. The first attempts were halted by excessive vibration from the engine, but by August 1910 she was ready to try her first flight. Lillian skilfully worked the bicycle handlebar, which was connected to the flying controls, and stayed aloft for a quarter of a mile. In doing so, she became the first woman to fly an aircraft in Ireland and the first woman in the United Kingdom, possibly in the world, to design, build and then pilot her own heavier-than-air flying machine. After her first successful flight in Randallstown, she continued experimenting with further flights, mostly of short duration, and then offered the biplane up for sale to fund further development. Her next machine flew regularly up to 30 feet into the air, but her activities were of increasing concern to her father. Lillian herself realised that the Mayfly was underpowered, but the lightweight aircraft couldn't handle a more powerful and heavier engine, and her father had offered to buy her a car if she would give up aviation. Having made her point that aeronautics were not purely a male preserve, she accepted the bribe. The aircraft engine was sold and the airframe given to a boys' club for use as a glider. Lillian wasn't the only lady to fly an island, though, and one of the most famous aviators in the world during the mid-twenties was Sophie Catherine Theresa May Pierce Evans. From Knockaderry in County Limerick. The young Sophie endured a troubled upbringing when her father murdered her mother and was then declared insane. She was brought up by two maiden aunts, but received an excellent education, enjoying playing sport, hockey and tennis, and displaying a flair for the sciences. She graduated from the Royal College of Science for Ireland with a top-class degree and then, during the First World War, became a dispatch rider based in England and then an ambulance driver in France. Her interest in sport continued when she set a woman's British javelin record and a world high-jump record, albeit a disputed one. She was a delegate on the International Olympics Committee and represented the United Kingdom in various events. In May 1925, Sophie flew to Prague to address a conference of the Olympic Congress. It was her first time ever in an aircraft and she became intoxicated with the whole concept of flight. By August, she had become one of the first members of the London Light Aeroplane Club, taking her first solo flight in October and obtaining a private pilot's licence the following month. I'm reminded of another high achiever that I know when I mention that she was also a parachutist, being the first woman to parachute from an aircraft landing in the middle of a football match. Although she could compete in air races at the frequently held air shows across the country, often beating the men, as a woman she was not allowed to take up passengers or otherwise earn a living from her skill. At the time, women pilots were deemed to be inferior to their male counterparts purely on the basis of their gender, although some objected simply as a matter of course as they remained entrenched in outdated misogynistic values. The predominantly official viewpoint was that women were naturally weaker than men, and that this position would be compounded during a menstrual cycle, thus putting their passengers' lives at risk. Sophie, never one to be put off easily, enlisted the help of many powerful people in her quest for a full licence, such as the Member of Parliament, Lady Astor, and agreed to be physically tested at any time to assess her flying abilities, thus effectively dismantling the main argument against women pilots. Indeed, many men could see the injustice of this two-tier licensing system and actively supported her claim. Her lobbying paid off, and in 1926 she became the first woman in Britain and Ireland to hold a commercial pilot's licence. She had married twice, the second and more successful union being that to Sir James Heath, but it only lasted a year. Now Lady Heath, and with the funds to afford more advanced aircraft, she set about becoming the Lady Icarus that she was now being called. In 1928, she flew her Avro Avian biplane from Cape Town in South Africa to Croydon near London. As she taxied across the grass airfield to the arrival area, the Avro became engulfed by the vast waiting crowd of many thousands. Mary had flown her aircraft nearly 10,000 miles from Cape Town, maintaining the aircraft herself and becoming the first person to make such a flight. Her whirlwind tour of parties and lectures across the United Kingdom and the USA made her a top box office draw, and the American public loved her as she competed in air races, until, in Cleveland, Ohio, she clipped a chimney as she dodged between racing pylons and crashed. In a coma for weeks, she had a metal plate inserted into her skull and eventually left hospital to discover that her estranged husband was divorcing her, leaving her with many unpaid bills. She struggled back to flying but was in and out of hospital and eventually returned to Ireland to run the aviation services at Kildonan Aerodrome, just north of Dublin. Sadly, she turned to the demon drink to assuage her troubled life and although her achievements rivaled those of Amelia Earhart and Amy Johnson, she perished in obscurity when she died falling from a trolley car in London. Besides a small plaque on the house where she lived as a child, there's no public recognition of Lady Heath in Britain or Ireland, and her book, Women and Flying, is often found hidden away on the lower shelves of Aviation libraries. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and you can find that at airlinepilotguy.com.